Welcome to this week's sermon podcast from Hawkwood Baptist Church in Calgary, Alberta. You can find out more about our church at hawkwood.ca. Now, here is Pastor Schaefer Parker with this week's message. The actual text for today's message is from Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. I don't think it'll take you long to find that because Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And then just turn over to chapter 9 and in a moment I'll read the first 11 verses. And um, we'll enter right into it. So let me just read then from the Word of God again and these 11 verses at the end of the period of the flood. The flood has come and gone, and Noah and his people are now on the earth, and they've offered sacrifices to God. And then we read in verse, chapter 9, verse 1, that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every... Yeah, I just want to make sure about something. Sorry, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground and all the fish of the sea, they are placed under your authority. Every living creature will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. I will require the life of every animal and every man for your life and your blood. I will require the life of each man's brother for a man's life. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man, for God made man in his image. But you, be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, understand that I am confirming my covenant with you and your descendants after you. I, um, I reminded you last week that God actually promised Noah back in Genesis chapter 6 that he would make a covenant with him. And so now we find here in verse 9 that God is indicating that he is confirming that covenant. And in verse 10, with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark, I confirm my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by the waters of a flood. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Well, again, may God bless the reading of his word. Uh, let me just quickly remind you of a few things that I said last week, three to be precise. First of all, I spent a good deal of time last week demonstrating that the Bible teaches a worldwide flood that eliminated all non-aquatic life outside the ark. Humans, animals, birds, everything, all was gone except for those that were on the ark. I, I'm not arguing the science and I'm not going to repeat myself from last week. I'm just seeking to remind you that last week uh, I did my best to show you that, that the Word of God, in fact, affirms a worldwide flood, everything destroyed. Secondly, we need to ask ourselves, why does this matter? And partly it matters because the covenant with Noah cannot be separated from the events that made it necessary. In other words, the covenant with Noah makes no sense if it is not based upon a worldwide flood that actually destroyed all life outside the ark. So the real question then before us is that of relevance. That is to say, we know God made a covenant with Noah, but 4,500 years later, we need to know if this covenant still matters and how it matters. So that's the point of today's sermon, to know that it matters 
and how it matters. So let's just dive right into the, the covenant with Noah. And the first thing that you'll see as you read Genesis 9 is that the covenant with Noah is clearly a renewal of the covenant of creation, the covenant that God made with Adam back in chapters 2 and, or 1 and 2 and so forth. And so that tells us that God sees Noah's salvation. I'm talking about his salvation through the flood. God sees Noah's salvation as a fresh start to his original creation. God preserved Noah, his three sons, their wives, all the animals and so forth. He preserved them in order to give a fresh start to his original creation, which means then, of course, that the mandates and the commands with a few specific differences that we'll get to in a moment, all of these things pertain from creation on. So this tells us something about the fundamental purpose of life. That is to say, you and me, we are still created and called to be stewards of the earth under the lordship of Christ. The idea of preserving the earth is not something that left-wing socialists came up with. In fact, if you want to know where the earth has been truly destroyed, just look at the environment that was left over from the time when Eastern Europe was under the communist boot heel. heel. Or look at Russia uh, as it was under the communist boot heel. Or look at China today as it is still under the communist boot heel and so forth. And so the idea of being stewards of the earth and preserving the earth and preserving the environment and so forth is a specifically Christian concept. And it is only where... Christians have prevailed that you will find that the earth has been in any meaningful sense actually preserved and not destroyed. And the other thing I want you to notice is the command to be fruitful and to increase in number and to fill the earth. This is almost identical language from what we find back in Genesis 1.28. So let's look at that together for just a moment. Genesis 1.28, this is the original creation mandate where God has created Adam and Eve, male and female created he them. And then it says that God blessed them back in Genesis 1. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And now compare that to Genesis 9-1. Today's text, after the flood, we read that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see the same language there as we find back in Genesis 1. Excuse me. The terror and the, the fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. So there's a slight change in language. In the first, indicate, the first case, before the flood, it said rule over the animals. Now it says the animals are placed under our authority, but the same general principle is there. And you see the the italicized words on the screen behind me to indicate these are the same words or nearly the same words to show that the same mandate given, to, uh, given in the covenant of creation now pertains in the covenant with Noah. And so I just ask you right now to remember who you are. You are God's special creation. You are made in his image. And that means that in fundamental ways, we are to be like God. If he is the creator then we are sub-creators. That is to say, we cannot make matter from nothing. We cannot create a universe from nothing as God did, but we can take the matter of the universe and use it to fulfill our stewardship mandate. That is to say, we are sub-creators 
purposed to take materials of the earth, both the the animate and the inanimate materials from the earth, and bring order out of the chaos of the natural world. And that's why we're mandated then to build cities and to carve farms out of the wilderness and farmland out of the wilderness and to build roads and other infrastructure to make life not just uh, possible, but even to make life rich and and, and comfortable and, and in all the ways that we can benefit one another and bless one another through all the things that we can build. Arts and crafts and literature and science and all forms of organized knowledge and and even governments, and I'll say more about governments in a moment, and and societies of men, starting with the family but leading to larger organizations and other groups of people that would come together, including governments, as I say. So whether it's worship, work, or play, all is to be done under God. And let me emphasize something to you, if I may. That's what Jesus had in mind when he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He was not talking about praying that Jesus would come back. What he's talking about is that the kingdom of God would well up within us as we believe in the Lord Jesus and flow out from us and that our lives would bless others and that the kingdom would spread from our lives all over the world as the creation mandate first given to Adam and Eve, then repeated to Noah and his sons and their families and so forth. The Lord's Prayer then is a prayer for grace that the kingdom will arise in our hearts and flow out from our lives by the work of God's Holy Spirit within us and establish God's kingdom on the earth. So that's the first thing. I wanted you to see the similarities between the Noahic covenant and the covenant that God created or that God established with Adam and Eve. But notice, secondly, that the Noahic covenant, while clearly a renewal of Adam's covenant, contains at least three big differences. So I'll just talk about them one at a time. The first big difference is this, that man's authority over the animals is now an authority of fear, not relationship. Before the flood, man had an authority over animals that I I can only imagine must have been somewhat like the authority that adults have over over little children, that parents have over their children, and that there was a closer connection and a closer relationship between man and animals before the flood, something that was lost at the time of the flood. I, uh, I think this would help us to understand something about why it was relatively easy for God to bring the animals from all over the world and for them to come to Noah and then enter into the ark, that, God, that, that these animals had a relationship with Noah, a closer connection with Noah than anything you or I would ever understand in our post-flood lives. And so man's authority over the animals is now an authority of fear. You see that, do you not? Here, as it says here in verse 2, the fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, and so forth. And, uh, and this is something new, something that did not, uh, it was different from before the flood. Now, we've lost something, and even though we can't even put it into words, every human being on the planet feels that loss, uh, this relationship that we once had with the animals. I think it explains man's longing to make pets out of everything we possibly can. People make pets out of ants, some of the smallest creatures on the earth. People make pets out of pretty much every animal. Sooner or later, somebody tries to make a pet out of it. Just this week, there was an article on uh, CTV News about a man who has a pet turtle. He's had this pet turtle for 25 years. He ties a leash on, on the trunk, on the, the shell and, and goes for walks with his pet turtle. He makes it, you know, and, and, and uh, it's a slow walk, you understand, and the guy doesn't get much exercise, but the turtle sure does, and, um, and, and, and so forth. I, I saw a video some years ago now, two or three years ago, I think, but 
Saw a video of a family in South Africa that have made a pet out of a hippopotamus, believe it or not. The hippo has the free movement of the house. He comes in and lies down and goes for a nap on the living room sofa and so forth. He's a full-grown hippo, but he's their, their pet. We love animals. There's a heart connection that we long to have, and wherever we can find it, we do it. I think this explains man's longing to make pets. The flood changed much more about the world than just geology and geography. It changed our relationship with the created world altogether. We lost something precious in our relationship with the animal world, and all mankind longs to get it back, and we will get it back. Isaiah, Samir read the passage just a moment ago. He tells us that as the gospel transforms the world and Christ's rule is once again extended over the earth, we'll be reunited with the animal kingdom. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the calf, the young lion, and the fatling will be together, and a child will lead them. And there are other passages in Isaiah and other parts of the Bible that indicate that there there's a glorious day coming when what was lost from before the flood will be restored. So that's the first big difference. Our authority over the animals has changed. The second big difference is this, that until that glorious future is realized, man is now authorized to eat meat so long as the animal is properly slaughtered and its life's blood poured out. You can read that for yourself. We've already read it in verses 3 and 4. Now, what we don't sometimes realize is this was an explicit change from the pre-flood world. Let me just show you that in Genesis 1.29, we learn that the pre-flood world was vegetarian. So Genesis 1.29, God said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This food will be for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything giving the breath of, or having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. The pre-flood world was vegetarian. See, there are some benefits to living in the post-flood world, and uh, bacon being among them, and I'm so grateful for that. But... Uh, but, but notice the change that God explicitly refers to in Genesis 9-3. God says to Noah, speaking of the change, every living creature will be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I have, insert the word now, I have now given you everything. Now, this is a kind of aside, but for those who believe that before the flood, there were millions and millions and millions of years in which Dinosaurs stalked the earth and so forth, and nature was genuinely red in tooth and claw. It is really difficult to harmonize Genesis 1:29 with that view of man's ancient past. But I'm just going to do this for now to make application that matters. I'm not going to attempt to explain away our privilege to eat meat as some have tried to do. Instead, I'm just going to say this: the New Testament explicitly identifies as ungodly those who demand, and notice the word demand, those who demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. So if you believe Genesis 9, if you know the truth about Genesis 9, you understand then that a great big thick steak, a, a, a pot roast, a, a sausage sandwich, a, you know, kielbasa, let's just let our minds run wild here for a moment or two, all the things that we dearly love, these things are given to us by God, and we are blessed to eat them. 
And, and the, 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 the curse from the New Testament is upon those. And by the way, notice that in doing this, in writing to Timothy, Paul is directly referring to the covenant God made with Noah. Not the covenant made with Adam, but the covenant God made with Noah. The New Testament affirms no, the Noahic covenant in several places, actually. Genesis 15 is another one where the, new, where the, 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 the uh, Noahic covenant is explicitly affirmed. But there are a number of places. But the point I'm trying to make then is this. It's okay if you want to be a vegetarian. I'm not going to tell you not to be a vegetarian. You won't be as healthy as you ought to be, but you, it's okay. Where you begin to sin is when you begin to pretend that somehow or another vegetarianism is a higher lifestyle, a superior way to live, and where you begin to, Im, Im, uh, to, to uh, Im, imply that others are lesser than you and their diets are somehow lesser than yours because they still eat meat. This, the New Testament explicitly rejects. I think that's worth noting, as I've shown you in the text of today's message. Uh, so there are a lot of places, though, uh, where the New Testament indicates that the covenant is in effect, the covenant with Noah is still in effect, and there is a future coming, and I love this part. Again, Samir read it to us just a short while ago. There is a future coming when vegetarianism will once again prevail, but you can know when that future has arrived when, as the passage says, the lion eats straw like the ox. When you see lions grazing in the open field just like cows do, then you can know that we should, not be, we should become vegetarians once again. But until that day, well, I'm hoping to have a ham sandwich or a turkey sandwich or something for lunch today. So, in the meanwhile. So that's the second big difference. Here's the third big difference between Noah and Adam. The third big difference is that capital punishment is instituted for the taking of human life, whether the taker be man or beast. That is to say, because human beings are made in the image of God, and if you look there at verse 6, it specifically says this, because human beings are made in the image of God, their lives are precious. And to strike down a person is like striking at God. We need to get that in our heads. To strike down a person is like striking at God, and the striker must forfeit his life, whether it be man or beast. I'm not going to get into the discussion now. A lot of people want to uh, oppose uh, capital punishment for a number of reasons. Some of them just simply oppose capital punishment. They don't want anybody's life to ever be taken for any reason. Others will produce other reasons, such as the fact that there have been times when after having taken someone's life, because we thought they were a murderer, it's discovered that they were innocent and somebody else, in fact, did the original, uh, uh, committed the murder that, that this other person died for and so forth. And, and I'm not suggesting that these aren't things we need to take into account. Of course they are. We do need to take these things into account. We must be careful considering how we uh, use and abuse or possibly abuse the idea of capital punishment. But fundamentally, we must not reject it. God has established as an eternal principle that because man is made in God's image, those who strike at man are actually striking at God and they have given up their right to live. By the way, most Bible commentators also suggest this is the beginning of government in the world because if you're going to have somebody who commits murder, then somebody has to help determine who it was that actually did the murder and whether or not justice is actually done. That requires someone, either some individual or some council, some kind of tribal group council or something, the elders or some of, something of that sort uh, to determine that everything is done decently and in order and that justice is in fact truly served and therefore this is the beginning of government. 
I think, though, before we move away from that, I'll just mention one other thing, and that is we need to understand that capital punishment is not particularly Jewish or Christian, rather because this is part of the covenant with Noah and because the covenant with Noah includes every human being who will ever live from the days of Noah on. The covenant with Noah includes everybody in the deepest jungle and on the most remote island that there may be uh, and so forth and so on. That covenant of Noah covers these people and therefore the rule about capital punishment belongs to every human society on earth and is therefore placed in the category of natural law. Let me just say this about natural law. I think that we have actually lost out, we evangelicals, by ignoring natural law, we have ignored a very powerful means of making contact with the people who are not Christians, who live out in, you know, outside the church, they, they don't believe in the Bible as the word of God and so forth. Natural law uh, is probably the, the place that we could make first contact, but that's a whole different sermon and I'll, I'll either never preach about that because it's too complicated or we'll just wait for another time. Anyway, I want you to notice now how the Noahic covenant is under attack in our day. For example, it's, you know, you go to school, you're going to learn there was no creator God. You're going to learn that because there was no creator God, man certainly couldn't be made in God's image. We're just the highest level of evolution that's been reached yet. And we're still wondering what's going to come after us. What will evolution surprise us with next? And you'll also be told by your geology professors that the flood never happened. And we're also told by the philosophers of our modern times that God did not make a universal covenant with all human beings. But let's be even more specific. Let's dig into the, the specific a aspects of the Noahic covenant to see how they're under attack. For example, we're told repeatedly not to be fruitful, not to multiply. We're told that the earth's resources are finite and limited and almost exhausted. And therefore, we need to limit the number of human beings that are alive. And we need to limit the impact that we have on the world and so forth. We are, the world does not believe. And we are often kind of led into forgetting that we serve an infinite God who has demonstrated over and over his abundance and his ability to care for the earth and to renew the earth and to renew the resources of the earth. There will be no end of what man needs until God himself brings the world to an end. Let me just talk to you for just a moment about some of the things that if you go back to the 1960s, there was a very popular best-selling book. Actually, it's still a, a somewhat of a bestseller uh, to this day known as The Population Bomb in which uh, a mathematician attempted to show that, there, that the world within 10 years was going to run out of resources and that there would be no opportunity for us to even, we'd all live horribly starvation-filled, resource-limited lives, and, and again, there'd be wars and you know, people would be fighting over the limited resources of the earth. Just this past week, there's been an entire spate of articles, all with various headlines indicating one thing. And that is that obesity is universally a worldwide problem. Our population is the highest it's ever been, and people are fatter than they've ever been. And the problem for every person on earth, with those rare exceptions where there is a political decision to deliberately starve a handful of populations on the earth, except for them, except for those, everybody else's problem is not where can I find something to eat, but where can I find the willpower to turn down the abundance that surrounds me? We're all heavier than we ought to be, and I stand before you as exhibit A in that problem. All right, so you see where I'm going with this. So 
Again, we're told not to be fruitful, not to multiply. We're told not to rule over the animals. Specifically, we're described by today's philosophers as just another animal with no more rights than the rest. And there's a growing number of advocates who are seeking to secure the same rights for pets as for humans. And they, you know, the, the logic goes like this. If slavery is bad, then it, you, you know, your pet is a slave and that's an evil thing and you need to release your pet and give him his freedom. And what happens to a dog that's turned out? What's happened to a cat that's turned out? What's happened to a turtle? What happens to a turtle that turns out, that's turned out, that's just given, you know, they, they oftentimes cannot take care of themselves. And yet the problem is we're told not to rule over the animals. We're told not to eat the animals that God has provided. Have you ever heard the phrase, meat is murder? We're told not to eat the animals that God has provided. And of course, capital punishment is denied. And, and, and the fact is, over the last 20 or 30 years, there's been this movement to reduce every form of punishment, every form of accountability. And all I can say is, in doing so, I don't think that you can also argue that at the same time, society has somehow improved. Actually, things are getting worse as we reduce punishments and so forth. Now, my, main, my third main point this morning is this, and I'm, I'm actually coming toward the end now. The covenant, not, well, we're moving toward the end. Of course, we were moving toward the end from the beginning, weren't we? So I don't know, but anyway. The covenant with Noah contains better promises than the covenant of creation. That may shock you to hear, but it's true. The covenant with Noah contains better promises than the covenant of creation. Among them, the first would be the preservation of the earth. That is, no more destruction of the whole earth until the end of the world. And when that comes, it will be something God does and not man. That is to say, the world will not end by the accident of an asteroid striking the earth. Let's be very clear about that. Until God determines that the end is here and it's time for Jesus to return and it's time for the judgment and all those other things that happen on God's timetable in his schedule, on his agenda, the earth will not end. So it won't end because of an asteroid. I don't care how many TV series they make about it. It's not going to end because of an asteroid, nor will it be an environmental disaster. It's not going to happen by global warming. Did you see the headlines this week? The fact of the matter is, in the last couple of years, the, uh, the level, the ocean levels, uh, sea level has gone down. It's not rising. It's not going to overwhelm the earth. It's actually gone down. And that's documentation from NASA itself, which has been a, a kind of a a center of, of global warming fear and so forth. But the earth's not going not gonna to die because of global warming and all the concomitant uh, results from that. Look again at Genesis 8:22. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. I'm not saying that there won't be some colder winters and some hotter summers. There won't be some drier springs and some wetter falls. Of course there will. Weather changes. It fluctuates but it's never going to become a blight upon the face of the earth. You don't have to be afraid of that whatsoever. God has guaranteed it. Look again at verse 9 in today's text. Then God said to Noah, understand, I am confirming my covenant with, with you and so forth. I confirm, verse 11, my covenant with you that never again will ever, every creature be wiped out and so forth and so on. The world is not going to suffer from another flood. Nor... Will the world be destroyed by something man does to himself? For example, South Korea releases a nuclear rocket. North, you know, the United States 
shoves one back towards South Korea, or North Korea, I should say, and then Russia gets involved, and then China gets involved, and right away, the world has been totally blown up by the madness of man and all of our nuclear weapons. That's not going to happen. Isaiah 45, 7, God says explicitly, I create disaster, and I also create blessing. God is in charge. The world will end only when God declares that the hour of his judgment has come, Revelation 14, 7. Not until then. The second greater promise is that every kind of living thing is included in God's promise. I'm just going to rush past this one, I think, pretty quickly. Uh, just notice that God promises all living beings that he will preserve the earth through all time. There's never going to be a destruction by flood or any of these other things. It is a universal promise, and it, pertain, it, it persists. that promise persists until Jesus comes again. And then the third promise, and we will take just a moment or two to deal with this one. The third promise is something we haven't actually read yet. So if you still have your Bible open to Genesis 9, let me encourage you to find it again. I want to start with verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. That even deals you know, with our global warming scare and so forth. Uh, verse 16, the bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have confirmed between me and every creature on earth. So the recurring covenant sign of the rainbow is God's promise that he will never again destroy the earth. And we need to understand that the rainbow then was something new, something that did not exist in the pre-flood climate. The appearance of the rainbow indicates that following the flood, the world's climate was radically changed. And I'm even gonna say the conditions of the atmosphere were radically changed. The rainbow, the rainbow is proof then that the conditions for a worldwide flood no longer exist. The waters above are no longer above. I'm not saying there isn't some moisture in the air, but there's not enough to flood the earth as there was before. But I want you to notice something more important than that. Notice that God does not call his bow a rainbow. That's our word. We call it the rainbow because it appears in the clouds after a rain. But God uses the Hebrew word for hunting bow or war bow. So we need to understand that when God said to Noah, I'm going to put my bow in the clouds, Noah was not thinking rainbow. He was talking about the bow of judgment with which God had originally destroyed the earth in the time of the flood. And now he's hanging that bow you know, a lot of poems and stuff will talk about the, the warrior who hangs his bow on the, the wall above the fire or something. God is hanging that bow in the sky to indicate peace between God and man. And in doing so, God has made his war bow the sign of his love and his grace. Notice that the bow is aimed not at us, but toward the heavens. Have you ever thought about that? If somebody's going to shoot a bow... And they pull back, which way is the curve of the bow? It's, it's, it's the closest part of the bow toward the, the target, is it not? When you pull the string back, you're holding the bow. The curve is toward the target. 
Notice that the curve of the rainbow is toward God and away from man. And so the bow is aimed not toward us, but toward the heavens. That is to say, God is holding himself accountable for the covenant that he established with us. When God made the covenant with Abraham, you'll recall that he passed in the, through the symbolism of the smoking furnace and fiery torch and so forth. He passed between the slaughtered animals to indicate that if he failed to keep his covenant with Noah, may it be done to him as it had been done to those animals. And the bow is curved and aimed toward God to indicate that if he fails to keep his promise to preserve the earth until the end of time, may it be done to him as he has done to the earth in the flood. God is holding himself accountable. Notice as well that the bow stretches between heaven and earth as a bond of peace. It reaches from horizon to horizon, which is an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? You can never find that pot of gold at the end because you can never get to the end. The bow always reaches from horizon to horizon as an indication of the breadth and the reach of God's mercy and his grace to all. And it's a reminder of the faithfulness of God's promise to never again destroy the earth. And I think this is crucial if you think of how the whole world is perpetually frightened over the possibility of impending doom. For example, most of you probably already know about the Aztecs as they were before they were discovered by uh, Cortez and the Spaniards and so forth. And you'll probably remember that one of the things that sickened the Spaniards was the vast number of sacrifices hundreds, sometimes thousands of sacrifices in a year, slaves and captives from other peoples sacrificed every day, many sacrifices every day. And you have to ask yourself, why were they being sacrificed? They were specifically attempting to placate the gods who once destroyed the earth by a flood. That's a fascinating little tidbit of information. Let me give you another factoid that's worth remembering in this context. And that is that the archaeologists tell us, not just in the Middle East, but around the world, wherever you find the most ancient remnants of agriculture, it's always over 9,000 feet. In the Andes, way up in the mountains. And in the Himalayas, way up in the mountains. Wherever you go, agriculture began, at least the earliest examples of agriculture that we can find, it was always 2.7 kilometers or higher. Why? I'm going to suggest because Early post-flood societies were hoping to escape the effects of any further floods. But we have to ask ourselves, why would these ancient peoples continue to be frightened over the impending return of a flood? Had God not promised Noah that he would never flood the earth again? Had he not given the rainbow as a sign or the bow as a sign that he would not destroy the earth with a flood? Why were these people so afraid? For the same reason that the end of the world still frightens a lot of people today. That is to say, rank unbelief. Doubt that God means it when he says what he says and gives what he gives. Too many people, and I'm including the fact that too many people who call themselves Christians don't really believe that God will keep his covenant promises or that he will bless those who call upon him. That he will, in fact, be for each one of us an ark of safety leading us through all the trials of this life and then the great trial beyond this life, the great judgment, leading us into his presence through all of these things. I love the great old hymn where it says, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. 
All other ground is sinking sand. And so you reject Jesus, reject God's word, reject the covenants that God has made, and all that's left is fear. And the world is sure filled with plenty of that, the fear of the end of the world. And so I say to you that it's time that God's people declare themselves free from the fright monsters. I'm talking about the politicians and their pseudo-scientists who seek to frighten us into doing the government's will or the United Nations' will or some powerful person's will. They try to frighten us into doing their will by constantly declaring the imminent end of the world. There are people in this room, along with me, who've lived long enough to remember that we've been through several uh, Scare, scaremongering tactics. Back when we were in high school, we were constantly inundated, by we, I mean people my age, uh, 64 and older or whatever, we were constantly inundated with the fear of nuclear winter. And we're all gonna freeze to death under a dark sky with no sun for years and years on end. Yeah, well, that didn't happen. So they said, okay, if you won't believe that, I've got another one. How about global warming? All the ice on Antarctica is going to melt, and we're gonna, the seas are going to flood the earth once again. Mm-hmm. And when they when we wouldn't believe that, then they tried to, they've tried to frighten us with various uh, viruses and, and other epidemics and fears of this and that and the other thing. And all I'm saying to you is we need to say no. We trust in God. We trust his promises. We are not afraid. We will trust in God. The rainbow then is a testimony that God is still at work to bless and prosper his creation. So let us not be like the unbelievers, like those ancient Aztecs or their modern representatives who willingly sacrifice millions of unborn children in the name of preventing overpopulation. You know what I'm talking about? The idea, you know, they can never say, well, we're, we're just really wanting to use this as another form of birth control. So they have this higher purpose. That is to say that it's better to limit the number of children you have, better limit the number of people on the earth because we're already out of resources and there'll never be any more resources and we can never, you know, renew the resources so they're limited and we're all about to starve to death. So it's better to abort children and it's better to provide euthanasia for our older people. It's better to eliminate anyone who is declared unfit for whatever reason, physically, mentally, socially unfit. We'll just eliminate them. Why should they cumber the ground? Why should they be another mouth to feed? We're running out of things anyway. And I've already shown you that that's not even true. So there we find then that the covenant of Noah, if we believe it, is one of the greatest sources of peace and hope that we can ever find in any part of God's word. Let me draw everything to a conclusion in the following manner. When God told Noah how to build the ark, this is exactly what I said last week, but I could think of no better way to end today's message. When God told Noah how to build the ark, he made sure to instruct him to put a door in the side. That's in Genesis 6. Then when it was time, God told Noah to enter through the door along with his family and all of the animals. And when they were all safely in, we're told in Genesis 7 that the Lord shut them in. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks of another door of safety. That is to say, himself. John 10, I assure you that I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So you'll remember that Noah entered the door of the ark, and then as the cataclysmic floods washed over the face of the earth, the ark floated safely. I'm sure God's preservation was a part of it. He was watching over that ark, watching over his people. 
watching over the animals that he had created. He was watching over the whole, the whole business, and the little ark floated through the flood to safety on the other side. If you enter into Jesus Christ, you will live safely in him. Whatever the world brings, whatever, when, whenever death comes, whatever judgment is on the other side, until we are entered, fully entered into the glory of God's eternal state where we can worship him and praise him and live in his presence forever. Until then, we are kept safe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are held in his hand and he is in the Father's hand and no man can pluck us out of his hand. He becomes for us the ark of safety. How do we know that we're in Christ, in his hand, in the Father's hand? How do we know that we belong to him? Uh, as I said last week, if on your lips is the confession, and I'm quoting Romans 10, verse 9, if on your lips is the confession, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so you'll be kept safe now and kept safe forever. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's bow our heads together. Musicians, will you come and prepare to lead us in the closing song? While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, let me just remind you that it's easy to say, I'm going to confess Jesus is Lord, but Jesus wants us to confess him before men. Jesus wants us to stand up before the world and say, I live in him. He lives in me. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. And so if you want to talk to me or talk to Pastor Sig or Pastor Grant about how to, uh, or one of our elders, talk to any one of us about how to know uh, the best way to confess Christ before men. The Bible teaches this through baptism and so forth. And so if you're ready to do that, come and talk with me. I'd love to talk with you. Lord Jesus, help us to believe in you. Help us to trust in your word. Help us, Father, to genuinely feel the comfort and the safety that the promises given to Noah still provide for us today. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hawkwood Baptist Church in Calgary, Alberta. We want to be a blessing to our community. So please contact us with any questions or prayer requests that you have by calling the church at 403-239-6200 or through our website at www.hawkwood.ca. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Hawkwood Baptist Church. We are on Twitter at Hawkwood Baptist. The sermon podcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching for Hawkwood Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. May God bless you this week.